This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... D20 Cthulhu. Piracy. Setting cliches. And True Detective. Pieces of Eight from our freebooting pals at Atlas Games is a pirate ship combat game played with coins. Minted metal coins that clink in your hand. And that's it. No board, no dice, no meeples, no colored cubes. Just coins made out of metal. To play Pieces of Eight, you hold a stack of pirate coins in your hand. That's your ship. And you hold one coin in your other hand. That's your crow's nest. Coins represent things like cutlasses, mates, barrels of grog, And the captain's monkey. Each coin has a special ability you use to attack your enemies. Your enemies being other scurvy players and their own filthy coins. When coins get blown to kingdom come, they go to the Davy Jones locker of your pants pocket. The last player with a surviving captain coin wins. One of the cool things about Pieces of Eight is that you don't need a table to play. Because of all the coins are either in your hand or in your pocket. So it's great for car trips. Or standing in line. Also a great pub game. Because if you're doing the pub right... All the little pub tables are already busy holding your pub drinks up off the pub ground. The no-table gimmick is clever, but Pieces of Eight is also a great game. For example, it won the Origins Awards Vanguard Award for Innovation in Game Design, and it was a nominee for the crazy prestigious Diana Jones Award. Designed by the worthy yet modest Jeff Tidball, who wrote this ad copy but was too shy to credit himself. How tragically Minnesotan of him. Yes, I guess we'll never know who designed this brilliant, groundbreaking game. But we do know that Atlas Games is running a limited-time clearance of Pieces of Eight coin sets right now. Each set contains enough coins for four players, and the limited-time price includes shipping and handling. Let's recap. Pieces of Eight is a pirate ship combat game played with minted metal coins. You don't need a table, so it's great for long lines, car trips, and pub gaming. It's an award-winning design for expert-certified great gaming. And right now, you can get a four-player Pieces of Eight package at a limited-time drop-everything price. Shipping and handling included. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-po8. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-the-letter-o-and-the-number-8. Or follow the link in the show notes. That might be best. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Kevin Maroney asks Ken and Robin. During the discussion of the D20 Cthulhu Project, Ken, you said something to the effect of, to the degree that D20 and Cthulhu games aren't completely incompatible anyway, what do you see about the D20 structure that makes it a bad fit for Lovecraftian gaming? And although Kevin asked Ken, I think we should ask Ken and Robin. Robin, do you see anything specifically about D20 or even F20 writ large that makes it a less comfortable fit for Cthulhu than either of the top-notch rule sets that it is sunk into comfortably? Well, the advantage of doing D20 versions of other games that have traditionally been done in other ways is that you do not have to learn a new rule system. There was the big idea during the early days of that license that there would be one rule system to rule them all, and everybody would get back together in a one 
group of role players and you would have this sort of lingua franca of how to play role playing games and it would be easier to do a d20 version of cthulhu or superheroes or space or whatever than to have a separate tailor-made rules engine for all of those things now if you look at my designs uh you can see that <laughs> you don't buy that. The, the other way uh <laughs> that i think that there's an enormous value in tailoring the emotional dynamic that the rules create to the experience, to the emotional experience you're trying to create at the table, so that is a game that owes its genetics to exploring areas, finding people and fighting them, and then searching the area and then moving on to the next fight and maybe having politics, but having, you know, a general feeling of power fantasy around all those things. How does that chassis then port to something that is supposed to make you feel weak and alone and subject to uh, going insane? Does that, uh, you know, at best, you're going to have a translation, I think, that is a little awkward. That's not to say that it can't be done or that the value of knowing the rules already is zero. For one thing, it may be if you can convince your players to play D20 Cthulhu and you can't convince them to play Trail or Call or any of the other exciting flavors of Cthulhu we have now, that's obviously better for you because one is a game you're playing and the other is a game you're not playing. Yeah, I think um, I want to put a pin in the in the grenade you've just unpinned uh, real fast and answer the question uh, directly. And the thing that I specifically see about the D20 structure that makes it a bad fit for Lovecraftian gaming is leveling up. If there is one thing that sort of feeds that specific, uh, that, that combination of things you talked about, Robin, the, the power fantasy and the escapism on the one hand, because as you continue to adventure, you get more powerful and more ridiculously out of proportion to the regular world. And also it drives specifically the behaviors that you talk about, Robin, of going to find monsters and beating them up for your own aggrandizement as opposed to, to save Arkham or to save you know, Chicago or to save Earth or whatever. Well, someone in the audience is thinking, well, actually, often in a fantasy game, you're trying to save your village or the city or whatever, but you're really doing it for your own aggrandizement. And that is why when you do it, you don't get any experience points or treasure. No, hold on. That's Call of Cthulhu in which you don't get any experience points or treasure. And uh, you go up incrementally in skills, uh, but you do not become inherently more uh, harder to kill or inherently better at fighting in the sense that your you know your your sort of basic attack number does not outpace that of another human being who did not go on an adventure or does not outpace that of the monsters that you're going out to slay if anything going out and encountering uh, the creatures of the mythos degrades you yeah and it and it causes that that very serious set of of psychic wounds and and moral damage that um uh in the sense of morale damage that dungeons and dragons combat almost never does at all or has to have a clutched on set of psionics rules in order to um uh to to sort of begin to asymptotically approach and that's the specific thing about the d20 structure and that's that would be the mechanical answer to your sort of larger strategic answer robin that the genetics of the game is it's just not a good fit for the story that uh, Lovecraft, or even more broadly, that Cthulhu adventures are trying to tell. Another more specific example is the question of knowledge. 
that in D20 in particular, of all of the flavors of D&D, of all of the F20 varieties, is about the idea that you can know things. One of the uh, design instructions that Jonathan and Monty and crew were given was, I want to know if you're riding a griffin on a flying carpet over a city with this humidity level, I want to know how to adjudicate that. That was one of the things mm. that Peter Adkison was saying, that this is the version of D&D that answers every question a GM could possibly be faced with, including the weird edge cases. And also that then extends to the players having a lot of knowledge. There's a high degree of system mastery in D20 in that you are rewarded for uh, knowing and uh, learning how to manipulate all of the different crunchy bits. That's uh, also part of the whole marketing strategy of D20 becoming the one rule set to, to rule them all, that it encourages you to do a lot of memory work and learning in order to master that. Well, the whole sense of mastery and knowledge, again, is contrary to horror in particular, where you don't know what's coming at you from around the corner. You don't have uh, imagining a fight on a grid with a creature where it's, okay, this creature has this uh, special ability. If I flank it over here, that's an entirely different thought process to there's an amorphous thing coming at you from the corner duck and Lovecraftian horror in particular is about the impossibility of ever knowing or if you do know things that's bad you don't want to know that'll that's one of the things that drives you nuts that's right taking a flanking bonus costs sanity <laughs> yeah the uh, the level of, of knowledge and by an interesting extension in d20 specifically and in most f20 games generically the specifics of knowledge, specifics of knowledge in the sense of lore in-game and skills in-game, are, by contrast, de-emphasized over the fundamental ability to whack something with a sword. Uh, you know, there is no game, I think, in the entire F-20 corpus in which being an alchemist is even remotely equivalent to being a swordsman, although one can imagine any number of fantasy opportunities in which the one might be better even than the other. I mean, there, there may be like a an edge case from the pages of dragons somewhere that they managed to cobble together something that was almost as terrible as a, uh, as a magic user out of alchemy. You could do such a thing, but no one has, but no one has. And that's because again, I think that the, the sort of the genetics of the game doesn't privilege skills and it doesn't privilege specific knowledges. Uh, and again, if you look at the source material in Lovecraft, uh, specific knowledges are sort of the name of the game because they open doors to, more horror. The more you know about anything in a Lovecraftian universe, the closer you get to discovering the horrible truth that underlies everything. And if you remember back in the day, during Edition War 1, or maybe 2, when uh, Second Edition came out, the, the thing that they were all screaming about, about D&D, was that suddenly skills were everywhere, and you had a million skills that you had to keep track of. And I think that that, in a lot of ways, was the D&D guys responding, Zeb Cook and those guys maybe responding to RuneQuest or responding to that plethora of skill-driven games like Hero and GURPS that were cropping up around that same time. But I think a lot of it also, the, the objections come from that sort of sense of violation that suddenly this is a universe where you have to keep track of other things or, or be rewarded for other things besides the core activity of Dungeons & Dragons. And I think that the, the core activity in, in Cthulhu adventuring is more, you know, it rests more on in-game lore, specifically because that can always turn into a landmine. And it's, again, it's a very special kind of, of skill knowledge or skill use 
that, you know, we sort of abstract in gumshoe into, yeah, you know so much that you're already in the next horrible scene now. And in, you know, a Chaosium game, it becomes a more um, uh, a, a gradual process, perhaps. But you're still very clearly pointing in that direction. So I guess the question then is to kind of turn the question on its head is, I guess, how well do you feel that given all of these structural limitations in the brief of putting together Cthulhu D20, which you, among other people, worked on, how well do you think that those were overcome or what as a GM can you do at the table if you do have that group of players who are willing to play a D20 Cthulhu game but not any others? How do you sand off those edges and make the game work? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not the uh, person to ask an objective response because Monty and I were both uh, originally on the design team for D20 Cthulhu, and since Monty was Monty and I was I, uh, Monty always won. So this is going to sound a little like sour grapes, and it isn't really, because I was very well paid for what turned out to be not a ton of actual design work on that game, and I certainly, you know, I've, I've enjoyed uh, the, the, the end result as, as a physical artifact and as a book, and I contributed my little uh, widow's mite to the second half, the sort of general horror half, and, uh, you know, how to run Cthulhu games, which is one of the best sections in any Cthulhu game ever. If you if you buy D20 Cthulhu, even if you play Trail of Cthulhu, there's tons of stuff in that D20 core book. But I do think that if I were doing it, I would set a very narrow band of level. I would I would either say you're starting at, you know, say third level or, or something, just so that you're a little bit up out of the, you know, uh, fighting a giant rat level. And then you never go up, or maybe you only go up to fifth level. Fifth level is as, is as top out as you can get. I think I would begin with that as a, as a known assessment by the players that as they come into it, they're like, okay, this is not going to be a game in which we're ever going to go up above X level. We have to stop thinking that way. We have to look at other things. And then there's stuff in the, in the back section about rejiggering the experience points, like there is in a lot of modern F20 games. And I think I would really lean on that and I would start putting experience toward other sorts of things, toward social currency, maybe, as opposed to toward um, uh, making your character more badass. You can introduce negative experience points when uh, you get a big sanity loss. You lose a bunch of your experience points. You're, all, you're only slightly ever catching up. As I remember, during the design process, Jonathan Tweet, and I don't know if he was being serious or was being experimental or was just being Jonathan, wrote us a really nice memo, which I wish I still had, suggesting that rather than one sanity score that, that drops, that in we had the opportunity to have every single score drop depending on what kind of horrible monstrosity you ran into. <laughs> so your character was basically just being run face forward into a giant abrading wheel. <laughs> and, you know, like, well, this is how your charisma drops. You become, I'm, I'm able to connect to people and you begin to be a twitching weirdo that people avoid and your dexterity drops because you have palsy and your int drops because you're, you're, you're too full of wrong knowledge and it messes with your cognition. And he had like these little explanations for it. He had a lot of really good things in that, in that memo. There's nothing more fun in D20 than refiguring your ability scores and exactly. all the derived stats from those. I, I, I think that Monty and I both looked at that and said, man, there is a great way to sell nine copies. <laughs> <laughs> this game, but it was a it was a beautiful it was a beautiful memo and it was a really great you know I mean just getting to get memos on game design from Jonathan Tweet that's like playing horse with Michael Jordan you you don't come out of that worse at your job and so as a, a GM at the table other than sort of capping the band of experience points would you recommend this hypothetical group of people I mean I'm not even sure this group of people exists anymore right or have all of those people moved over to Pathfinder and lost their 
sense of uh, wanting to play all of the other games in that D20 style? Is that Well, a, I mean, uh, the, the, the book sold, I think, 45,000 copies, and I think that some of them are probably in the hands of people who are dedicated F20 players, Pathfinder or old-fashioned D20, or that are playing one of the other iterations of D&D and would like to be able to draw one from the other. I don't think that they're all in the hands of decadent esthetes who merely appreciate the art and uh, Scott Glancy's incredible setting chapter. Um, I, I think that, you know, it, it's, it's always worth saying that, you know, people who are playing D20, you know, they, they have, they have, as you say, the, 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 the Cthulhu game they're playing, and I, I guess to modulate what you say, is at least a Cthulhu game, and I would prefer people to play a Cthulhu game if they can, just because the universe is so terrific and so interesting. So, yeah, that's what I'd say. Well, uh, having said that, I think we've hit our exact segment length, and it's time to move on to the next thing. That's the precision that only D20 can give you right there. Exactly, yes. Well, I, I could tell you had a flanking bonus, <laughs> so I wanted to get away from you. That's wise. Hey, Ken, guess what project touted here on the podcast is now crowdfunding on Indiegogo? I don't have to guess. I can see here in the script that it's my pals at Phoenix. As in Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. When typing it into your search engine of choice, remember that all right-thinking persons and Swedes spell it F-E-N-I-X. Uh, and, of course, you don't mean to make a distinction between those two things, but you can tell that it addresses the right-thinking demographic because among its contributors is elliptonic raconteur Kenneth Height. Hop aboard the Indiegogo campaign for a Best of Phoenix anthology in English. Stretch Goals expand its ambition to multiple volumes. Among its Heightian treasures, Dacian werewolves. Golden vampires. And the frost-caked western once upon a time in the north. Plus, from a roster of other contributors, singing spellcasters, Drowned Oz, and the card game Phoenix Fighters. Plus the cartoon exploits of Burger Barbarian. On Indiegogo until April 3rd, 2014. The shivering of timbers and the squawking of the fashionable shoulder parrot tell us that we have entered a particularly nautical, some might say piratical, instance of the History Hut. Ken, uh, in celebration of the guys at Phoenix uh, meeting their fundraising goal for their Best of Phoenix anthology, you wrote an article for them about piracy, and uh, mm -hmm. it sort of a, hits two essential piracy points. And the first one is uh, the best practices of piracy. So, uh, Ken, if you want to alert our listeners with their peg legs and their eye patches uh, to the most effective ways of being a pirate, I think they would uh, appreciate that as they're sailing the seven seas. Well, traditionally, the best practice of piracy, uh, I mean, and a lot of this is going to depend on the necessary conditions of piracy, which is part two, not to give that away, but the best practice of piracy is to outnumber your foe. And this is true in Somali pirates now. It was true in the South China Sea in the 19th century. It's true in the Caribbean during the Golden Age of Piracy. It's not so much taking your crew of guys against another crew of guys and having cannon duels. The, the ideal piracy is you cram as many people as possible into small boats and you sail them toward a ship that has no alternative but to be in shallow water and you swarm aboard and then, you know, even if there are people on that ship who are dedicated soldiers, there's only a limited number of, of bullets that they have. 
and they will be overwhelmed by by sheer numbers. It's it's basically it's a human wave attack on the ocean. That has historically been the best practices of piracy since you know day zero when the first guy in in the crummy part of Egypt sailed uh, his little canoe down to mess with the guy in the nicer canoe. The crucial elements are that you have a, a big crew of, of literally desperados, meaning people who are desperate enough to climb on board a ship with a very great chance of being shot in the head. Yes, because the thing about a wave attack is you, you, you know, it's sort of like why crows <laughs> flock together. You are hoping that uh, you're the guy who's going to get the advantage of the overwhelming numbers rather than being the mm-hmm. red shirt who gets mowed down. Yeah, and, uh, and I guess one of those best uh, practices of piracy is to make sure that you are, you know, as, as an individual pirate, that you are capable of being the non-red shirt uh, in, in, the, in the mass of pirates. And that sort of speaks to the second question, which is that a lot of your, your pirate crew, the more skilled they are at at least the actions of boarding and the actions of close combat fighting, the better your chances as a pirate. So it's not like the, those uh, draftees in Stalingrad where they're just sort of given a rifle and sent forward solely to absorb machine gun bullets. What you want with a, with a pirate crew even more than with an infantry squad, is you want people who are actually capable of close combat. And that means that what you want are sort of, you know, violent roughnecks with very little sense of self-preservation, which fortunately for pirates and unfortunately for everyone else are are generally not hard to come by. But again, this notion that um, uh, your pirate crew is just a a bunch of of happy roisterers will will pretty much get you killed. You, You need a bunch of people who might as well knife you. You're, you're looking for the population of a prison yard, not the population of a theme park ride. And which is why they, uh, they call them pirates. Yeah, I guess. This is interesting because it's a, another example of a real-world form of combat that we don't model in role-playing combat particularly because cinematically, what you would get there is you would not necessarily have a lot of scenes of just wave combat of somebody being overwhelmed or you might have a you know a quick scene of all the pirates getting on the boat and overwhelming everybody but if there's a fight involving the main characters it's sort of the main characters have a big exciting traditional sort of hand-to-hand fight and then the background extras all sort of tussle with one another in the background whereas the uh, if you're one player a character in a mass of uh, pirates executing this sort of wave attack, you almost sort of need a rule system that's kind of based more on, you know, uh, John Keegan's idea of sort of the zone of fire, of the killing zone in a in a fight. Whereas if you, uh, you know, whether you live or die in the fight just sort of depends on where you are in relationship to your enemy's weapons and you have a different chances of success depending on, on where you uh, get up to. And then you would quickly you know, roll whether you uh, whether the entire group succeeds or fails, and then you would roll whether you are unhurt, hurt, or dead, uh, which goes mm-hmm. uh, kind of against our whole sense of what a fun, dramatic fight does. Yeah, and that's because it is. I mean, most, and this is because fights actually in the real world obey different laws than the laws of drama. And it, even when we're looking at fights that are intentionally dramatized, like boxing matches, if you watch a lot of boxing, you'll note that a lot of times they would be terrible you know, role-playing combats that, you know, there's a lot of dodging, there's a lot of getting out of the way, there's a lot of just sort of standing and slowly abrading single hit points. If you ran 95% of boxing matches in any game system you care to mention, your players would rebel and, and never 
uh, come to another fight scene with you again. Right, and with and, and even with those, with, you sort of have to assume, uh, as you would sort of have to assume, but we rarely do in a role-playing fight, that a huge uh, there's all sorts of things going on in the fight between the two opponents that are never actually registered as a hit or miss. That for every roll mm-hmm. you make to hit, or to see if you are hit, you make another uh, nine feints and dodges, and, and that really you're only measuring the really key big hits, whether they land or not. Right, which is which is which um, uh, becomes more problematic when you start having systems that uh, explicitly and with real rules consequence give a number of seconds that a given round lasts. Because, again, if you look at an actual you know, boxing match, they last many, many, many rounds in the sense of combat rounds. Right, as and to... they're intentionally set up to be way longer than, you know, right. those two guys fighting in real life. That would end a lot quicker because there's all sorts of things, <laughs> including the padded gloves, to uh, elongate it. But we've, we've strayed far from piracy. Uh, far camp. from the sea. So uh, perhaps we could get back on topic by looking at the necessary conditions for piracy. Yeah, the necessary conditions for piracy, and again, this is the sort of deal where, you know, the more of them that happen, the better your chances of piracy, but without some of them, you're not going to have piracy, and this is one of those things that sort of gets up my nose when people just put pirates in because they like pirates, but nothing else in the setting drives it, to foreshadow perhaps. But the, uh, the I mean, the first thing you need, obviously, is, is rich ports where you assemble your cargoes, and these don't have to be seaports. There's land piracy, and you could have sky piracy in a world of you know, super cheap aircraft and uh, cargo zeppelins, or uh, they might be, you know, the place where they load all the treasure onto the dragon before flying it down the volcano to the, the, the king's palace, or, or however they do it. But there has to be a place where you put cargo uh, together, and that becomes a target for, not for the pirates to attack the port. That very seldom happened, and when the pirates do that, they are, they are considered tremendous awesome pirates like Captain Morgan, and they get rum named after them. Uh, but that has to be a, a sort of beginning. If the if the cargo doesn't travel in a, in a concentrated amount, there's no money in piracy, so it doesn't happen in the first place. You have to have a compressed and ideally a predictable shipping lane. So there has to be a place where everyone carrying the cargo has to go through so that you know that that's where you can wait with your pirates. Again, if you could, you know, teleport your cargo or sail anywhere in the world without, you know, constrained by, you know, penins- peninsulas or ocean currents or reefs, then there, there couldn't be piracy because you wouldn't have a, a choke point really to go after. And again, piracy without that kind of, of area on the map becomes less plausible. So are all of these facts about historical piracy just sort of bummers getting in the way of our desire to have uh, swashbuckly pirates? I don't think so. I think that since every fight in a role-playing game is abstracted, you don't necessarily object to the lack of historically correct tactics. I think that Getting together a band of desperados can make terrific role-playing, and I think that, you know, having trade routes that make sense is, a, well, it's dirt easy if you, as I always suggest, as, as you think I always say, start with Earth, but even in any game you design, it shouldn't be that hard to um, uh, spend two seconds thinking if you really want pirates and putting them in. You need lots of harbors, which is not hard to get. You need a confused or weak local jurisdiction so that uh, or a power vacuum for them to hide in and split up the loot. You can't really have pirates if the long arm of the law comes down and takes all their stolen goods away instantaneously. And that's pretty much what you need to make that happen. It, again, it's ideal if you've got a lot of combat-trained sailors, like we talked about. It's ideal if sh- ships or planes or land leviathans, or whatever you're using as your pirate vessel, are cheap and easy to maintain. 
you ideally want offense to trump defense in ship combat so that if you're pirating against ironclads, it becomes much harder to, uh, to uh, fire and take out their rigging and leave them becalmed. You want your offensive weapon to cripple the cargo ship, not blow it to hell. And you want, ideally, a situation in which ships uh, can outrun word that there are pirates around here. And you don't necessarily need that. For example, we have piracy now, despite, you know, light speed communication. But if you look at sort of the local conditions, the ship can, at the very least, a pirate ship can outrun any plausible response unless there is a multinational task force in the area, which then means that suddenly the zone of piracy is no longer a power vacuum or a laxly enforced area, but is basically an extrusion of the U.S. Navy or the British Navy or the Chinese Navy. Now, my challenge with piracy is not the question of whether it's historically accurate or not, but finding ways to give variance to the different action set pieces, that if there are a whole lot of battles on ships, that after a while, those tend to become fairly similar to one another, the way that, you know, if you're only doing uh, 20 by 30 rooms where you open the door and there's orcs inside. Um, and so you, you really have to think, uh, as you're planning a pirate campaign, uh, think up a whole bunch of different set pieces, only some of which occur on a ship, and find different ways to make uh, those ship combats when you have them occur differently once you've done, you know, your one or two iconic early ship battles as, okay, well, now they're attacked by a giant squid or this uh, fight of a storm brews up in the middle of it, or, okay, now we're conducting a bombardment of a city, or if you're an anti-pirate, you know, we're going now to rescue the bond company stage. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that you need to do, I think, in any game that Im that is sort of based on uh, something with with a ritualized series of of combats. I mean, samurai games have this problem. Musketeer games have this problem. That you pretty much kind of have to keep changing up the stakes of the fight, the eventual consequence of the fight, the nature of the fight. In a lot of cases, I mean, if you look, for example, at the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, the the actual piratey fights that we think of are sort of individual bits in a much longer story of other sword fights and treasure hunts and being chased around and, and I, and, and, you know, being haunted by, by demons and such. And I think that in most, most fantasy games, most, uh, tabletop games, you're not actually playing a purely historical game in the sense that you don't have, you know, you, you always have the chance of there being a necromancer on the, on the ship or there being, and by a ne I mean a necromancer actually has magic that works, as opposed to you could have necromancers on all kinds of ships. But <laughs> Effective necromancers. <laughs> it, it does. It doesn't really tend to 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 to, to have a tactical effect. Um, and and this is the sort of thing that I think you have to start introducing into your pirate campaign. You have to know sort of like you like you like you intimate. Where are you going with this? One of the other challenges with a pirate game, as I've discovered a couple of times running them, is that with any sort of remotely plausible uh, historical value for a cargo, your character's inner certified public accountants comes out because the, the players are not actually people with the incredibly poor decision-making skills that pirates historically have. They're people who say, I have a whole cargo of netmeg. I'm going to sell it and live the life of a king in Connecticut. And then your campaign has pretty much been one fight and it's over. And I want to make one last nutmeg score and retire. <laughs> that's right. One big nutmeg. And that actually is, is what happened in, in one of my games. And my players, even now, some of them will still refer to, um, well, we could 
instead of do the thing that you obviously want us to do, let's, what are the local nutmeg prices like, Ken? Then they, they raided the island of Grenada, where all the nutmeg in the world for, uh, for a while was made, and they basically cornered the market on nutmeg, and they said, we own all the nutmeg in the world, we're pretty much going to just <laughs> take it easy now and, and sell nutmeg and have rich people problems. And that, of course, is why you have to have, you know, supernatural vengeance yes. uh, be wreaked upon right, them. Because any movie about pirates, unless it's like the last three minutes of the movie, if they go, <laughs> well, we're all set for life now with all this nutmeg, you know something bad is going to happen to that nutmeg. Yeah, that's right. I'm just going to store this nutmeg here by the barrels of gunpowder and take one last stab at my enemy. <laughs> Mr. Match. Uh, well, uh, speaking of retirement, I think it's time for us to uh, retire from this uh, segment to our giant piles of nutmeg or possibly the next segment. Rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, and the shaking of bags of chips of your favorite snack variety, or more likely your third favorite snack variety, because no one brought the ones you actually wanted. Welcome us to the gaming hut, as always. And within the gaming hut, we once more look at the shag carpet, we once more look at the lead dwarf miniatures, we once more look at the um, uh, turntable left abandoned in the corner, and we think, goodness gracious, the gaming hut is awful samey samey today. Robin, what aspects of the gaming hut's traditional decor, or perhaps even gaming's traditional decor, would you strip from it if you could? So uh, I thought we would look at the, as you suggest, the our pet peeves when we're reading uh, setting material and things that I think that we as uh, game writers go to the well uh, too often with or don't think hard enough with. And so the number one thing that I would like to suggest that really starts to wear on me when I read setting material is the super badassery of the super evil badass badassery evil ton. Um, and this is basically, often you will find descriptions of major NPCs in a setting where the only thing that you're given about that NPC is a sometimes compellingly written description of just how tough and mean and nasty and evil they are, period. And that's all you get about them. Now, if you want to have uh, one super tough uh, badass character or two in your setting, that's great. But that's not enough to go on, and you will find that descriptions that do that tend to have like 12 or 15 different NPCs that are all described that way. So I would say to uh, setting designers, the positive way to fix that is to, uh, first of all, make sure that you modulate your descriptions so that they're not all the same, and secondly, that you give me something else to work with other than there being ruthless and mean and cruel and dangerous. Of course, if they're going to be antagonists for the player characters, they perhaps should be all of those things, but they have to be something else as well. There has to be some sort of in to uh, somehow interact with them in uh, some way and some other thing that goes with their meanness, whether that's uh, some motivation, uh, some other character trait. It can be a soft side. It can be a bit of personal history. So that character can maybe be completely horrible, but maybe they have an interesting brother or sister that you tell me about. So give me more 
than just how uh, tough and uh, antagonistic all of the NPCs in your setting are. And I would just, I would just really fast put a, a writer on that, that that is also true to your theoretically good guy NPCs. That if the only thing we hear about the good guy NPC is that they are tough and forthright and badass and tougher than the players and all of the other elementary things that they might be, I I object to that again because even if I'm the GM, that's a, that's a fairly boring one note to play is is sort of power and I want you know more motivations. I want the circumstances in which they might screw over the players or I'm not the situations in which they wouldn't come to their aid or the situations in which they might take out one of the badass NPCs in a, in a mutual uh, assured uh, clearing of the, of the, of the way for uh, actual adventure to happen. I want to know more about the, the good guy NPCs likewise. Yeah, I, I would certainly agree with that. I just think it's um, a way less common cliche than a, the right. super yeah. badass badassery of the Evilton. Yeah. My, I guess uh, one of my least favorite things about a setting, especially in fantasy, but really in any setting is the conveniently incompetent empire. The notion that this empire that has existed for millennia or for decades or is at least good enough to have conquered, you know, the known world or the stretch of it that they find themselves in is still somehow not uh, capable of finding the missing data tapes, right? That, and, and certainly there are plenty of historical examples of empires that are incompetent. But if you look at what's going on inside them, there are always other factors. The, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, for example, your classic conveniently incompetent empire is incompetent because of a lot of interior politics and a lot of uh, historical hanger on and because the real power in the world has by then moved on to Germany and Russia and Britain and other countries. And so it's no longer, you know, the sort of the evil empire of the setting. It's just, you know, the, uh, the, the, the crooked cops writ large. And I think that when you are in a setting in which the imputation, because your characters are heroically fighting this bad empire is that this bad empire is actually effective, making them conveniently incompetent, incapable of shooting guys, incapable of following up obvious clues, incapable of using sensible tactics that vitiates your victory as player characters. Uh, even Mussolini's Italy, for example, uh, there uh, were plenty of very, very competent uh, secret police and other foes for the players to fight. And the Italian army may or may not have been particularly apt against uh, the Greeks or the British, but it was perfectly apt against lots of other foes uh, on the way to the Greeks and the British. And I think that the, that the, um, uh, the approach that you take in a, in a setting, if you're going to set up an empire as a threat, they should respond as an intelligent uh, foe with a lot of resources response. There's a section in one of my uh, games that I ran. It was a nightlife game of all things. And the characters are all supernatural monsters sneaking across America. And they, trigger the attention of the army. They've, they've crossed over onto an army base. I forget if they had to steal a magic item or a UFO or something. But the army is now after them, and one of the players was like, so the army's after us. That's nothing. We just sort of, you know, run uh, to the next state, and they stop fighting us. And my, and my player, Bill, said, no, no, this is Ken game. The army is good at their job. <laughs> <laughs> and I have always striven ever since to make sure that in Ken game, the army is good at its job. And that is just something that gets up my nose when I see it in other settings. It's a tough balancing act to make sure that the antagonists are competent and uh, competent in a way that explains why they're in the Ascendant and aren't uh, decadent and eclipsed without making the players at the same time feel that there's nothing they can possibly do to get out of a situation. So you, mm -hmm. uh, it's 
one thing to establish that they have an Achilles heel, uh, something that makes sense, or even, you know, something that uh, the the Death Star has been freshly constructed, so nobody has tested its exhaust port uh, vulnerability <laughs> right. un- until now. Uh, that's one thing. But if there's, you know, a thousand Death Stars and they've been in operation for a hundred years and no one has ever noticed or taken advantage of this design flaw, that becomes a lot more difficult to uh, justify. So you can certainly give your players ways of uh, having a chance against a imperial monolithic foe uh, in uh, one sense by making them less monolithic and allowing them to, to play the system. But I, I think you're right that uh, basically what you're talking here is kind of idiot plotting writ large. Mm-hmm. Written into the setting. And, and again, history is replete with idiots, but they, if, they, if, if, uh, if the entire structure of an empire is idiots, it doesn't last very long because there is always a bigger fish. I guess my next pet peeve is kind of the flip side of that in that I've uh, over the years read a lot of descriptions of uh, places in uh, imaginary worlds that are given a lot of space on the page and that they then tell you, but this is so impregnable, so tough, such a dangerous place to go that nobody could possibly get there and survive, including the player characters. And so, well, why have you just spent all of this time describing something that can never actually come into play that mm. is has to be closet drama? Now, you do see this in fictional sources, in Lovecraft's Dreamlands, for example, because he wasn't anticipating that people would take all of his stories together and put them together into a source book. <laughs> he probably didn't notice how many times he went to the trope of anyone who goes to this place never returns. Well, he uses yeah. that a lot. And uh, once you take those things from a whole bunch of disparate stories and make it into a setting, it then becomes, well, no one has until now gone to this place and survived, but your player characters are going to be the ones who discover a way to survive. But that's something that you don't see built into a lot of these descriptions. They're just given flat out, here's the headquarters of our super potent organization, this clan of uh, wizard vampires or whatever, and you can just never go there. Uh, you'll be cut down to ribbons if you uh, try to go there. You can't just forget about it. And uh, here's another uh, thousand words on it. And I think if you if you look at the literature, because obviously in Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is full of Randolph Carter going to places that people are like, no, you can't go there. You'll be killed and not being killed. That there's something about Randolph Carter or something about the army of ghouls that he brings about half the time that prevent the the natural fate from happening. And I think if you look at the setting, you know, whether it's the, you know, the, the, the swamp of death in um, uh, Princess Bride or whatever the places are, there always are ways that the heroes survive. And so if you're writing them, write in those ways, write in the things that, you know, as long as you can avoid the fire pockets and uh, fight off the rodents of unusual size, the, the swamp of death is actually not uh, fundamentally hostile or whatever. And give in-game levers in which your players can interact with them, even if they know that landing on the island of Riley or going after the nameless city is in fact going to abrade their sanity or their hit points down to a, a various nub. Yeah, all you need to say is uh, ordinary people could never survive here, but this is not a story about ordinary people, and here's mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z as to why you could possibly uh, avoid that <laughs> terrible fate. <laughs> X, Y, and Z, indeed. I, I think that uh, on that alphabetic note, I, I should plug uh, Diana Wynne Jones' Tough Guide to Fantasyland, which is 
written as a travel guide to the worlds of fantasy with all of the things that people coming from an earth where things work normally uh, will suddenly discover are true in fantasy land and nowhere else. Like the fact that horses can be ridden at a gallop all day and uh, put away with no attention and then be fresh as a daisy the next day. She suspects that horses in fantasy land might be a vegetable <laughs> instead of an animal because they behave like no animal ever has before or since. But she's uh, in the incomparable... Uh, British wit of Diana Wynne Jones. She's just sort of calling out the um, uh, the the the, uh, the aspects of Fantasyland that are particularly uh, cliched and and terrible and uh, and story intrusive. And so, pick that book up, and you will find all of the other things that you shouldn't be doing either. One of the things that I don't like in a setting, and this is true in Fantasyland and in alternate history land, is the the noble savage. As a going concern. I, I don't like noble savages anyway, because that's Rousseau's filthy uh, philosophy poisoning the West. But in a fantasy world, yeah, why not have a, you know, a, a, a noble savage that is actually noble? But in the sense that they then are able to hold off the civilized world with no demographic advantage, with no industrial advantage, and with no really effective death magic... That's just not going to happen. There are reasons that the, the Indians lose and the cavalry wins, and they are not uh, based on the relative morality or immorality of one or the other side. They are based on the number of guns and people that one side can put into the field. Yes, when an undiscovered Amazonian tribe is discovered in contact civilization, that tribe uh, lasts for another generation and dies. Exactly. Yeah, the, the, or it lasts as that tribe. And so uh, the Ewoks... Uh, for example, uh, the little Stone Age uh, teddy bears being able to take down the Empire sort of combine both of those things that I hate. They combine the weirdly effective noble savage and the conveniently incompetent Empire because I think that anyone who's ever, you know, even read one book of literally almost any discipline from astrophysics down to military history can think of a better way to establish a base on Ewok planet than the Empire actually did. Are, are you are you indicating that they're an incompetent Empire, Ken? I am. I am. I have long suspected that when the Emperor says that it's a legion of his best troops, that they are from the planet Best, which has historically produced nothing but terrible troops, and that's why they're garrisoning the teddy bear world, where not even they, surely, can, do, can screw well, it up. we know that they're all clones who hit their heads a lot, so... <laughs> yes, we, we, we think that maybe Django Fett might not have been the ideal person to clone, that maybe we should be cloning, oh, I don't know, Anakin. That one might have been nice. We had his DNA all over the place. Anyway, this is not about Star Wars as much as it would like to be. It is about things that bleed over from our fantasy worlds into our constructed fantasy worlds that shouldn't. The last thing I'd like to mention in this segment is the implausibly long chronology, where you have civilizations that are described as having a backstory which, A, the backstory in almost any fantasy setting that starts with a long backstory about the thousands-year history of the world, that's almost always stuff you can just rip out of the book and throw over your shoulder, and you'll never notice that you didn't have it. But, Robin, surely just as many people have read The Silmarillion as, as have read The Hobbit. <laughs> yes, and what exciting reading that is. Or have read The Appendices as have read the rest of Lord of the Rings. So, first of all, those you know long histories of uh, distant pasts are quite often just kind of useless word spinning in settings. But also, even if you are going to use them, sometimes you will see, well, uh, this civilization has lasted for 100,000 years. Well, Homo sapiens, basically. Uh, <laughs> the, that, and, you know, uh, there's only 20,000 years where we were doing anything interesting. And uh, 
civilization is what uh, 10,000 maybe tops and if you think of all of the changes that different societies uh, go through even societies that are you know semi-continuous over time like Chinese society for example there's all kinds of upheavals and changes and things uh, alter quite a bit and the idea of you know a 50,000 year history for a, a civilization that uh, basically is the same 50,000 years ago, except their drinking glasses were bigger and they were carried swords instead of had guns, uh, just always hits my implausibility meter. And it's uh, it's useless to boot. So when you're <laughs> creating a long chronology of your fantasy or, or science fiction history, uh, take all the numbers that you've assigned to it as being impressive and cool and, you know, collapse them tenfold. Yeah, the um, I guess with elves you can sort of get away with it because they live for thousands of years and their lives already sound and they boring, don't do anything. So, so and they don't do anything. They're 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 sessile uh, culturally. But I I think that if you're putting humans in, you're going to you're you're going to want to either just say and this empire is fifty thousand years old and then never mention it again and only get the, that shot of of historical uh, depth or uh, like you say just collapse it and make your empire a proper number of centuries old instead. I, the, one of the, I guess my last thing that I object to is the Church of No Redeeming Virtues. And certainly as a, as a Reformed tradition Protestant, I am well aware of the bad behavior of monolithic churches throughout global history. But one also must remember that the reason that those churches continue is not because of oppression and predation and priests writing down the common man. Those churches continue because they provide genuine social benefits, in addition to spiritual benefit, in addition to a sense of community, in addition to connection to the divine, they also provided, you know, food and shelter and all kinds of other churchy things that churches historically provide in pretty much all societies, even in, you know, the most top-heavy theocracies like Tibet, the, the monasteries provided, uh, played a, a, a beneficial social role in running the in, in, in sort of the country's operation day to day. And you may might have come from outside and said, well, surely there's a better way of doing things, as indeed my bold Protestant ancestors did. But that's raw that's different from saying this church exists only to exploit people and only to remove money from their pockets. That is at the very least, it's sloppy storytelling because it makes something into a one-note story element, which is boring. Right, because it wouldn't take very long before uh, someone in your uh, backstory of this religion came along with their uh, articles of protest and nailed it to somebody's door, or mm -hmm. uh, another society came in with a competing uh, religion, which, of course, is what happens all the time in uh, real history, is that faiths uh, rise and fall and adapt. and they Or, or even that the genuine reforming movements would would spring up within the religion, Indeed. as happened many, many times in, in Catholic, uh, in, in the history of the Catholic Church, where people like St. Benedict or people like St. Francis or people like St. Dominic would come up and say, no, this is all wrong. We're getting away from the fundamental message of being nice and not being terrible. Let's be nicer and not be terrible. And then, uh, surprisingly to people who have been raised on 19th century anti-clerical bad history, the church is like, oh, you're so right, we should do that. I mean, there's there's a reason that St. Francis wasn't strung up by the toes, but was instead given wide latitude to set up monastic orders. It's because people, even in the 14th century, the sort of the pit of despair as far as the Catholic Church's bad behavior time, were all, you know, ashamed and said, yeah, you're right, Jesus would be mad. And, you know, they agreed with them. They they tried very, very hard to, to sort of prune back the... Uh, the cartoonish um, uh, bad behavior. And it's not that bad behavior did not occur, but it occurred 
within a context of good behavior that explains why people voluntarily went to church and, and tithed. Right, and super exploitative religious organizations that really exist only to prey on uh, their members tend to be small. They, they're they're cults. Mm-hmm. They're uh, weird right. fringe societies that sort of isolate people from the rest of society in order to make sure that nobody goes, hey, wait a minute, this deal is not working out. So they have mm-hmm. to brainwash people really heavily and... Uh, keep recruiting new members because they have a heavy churn rate. And that's not something that can be spread out over an entire society. That's something that happens in uh, little pockets. Right. And again, it all it, it, to sort of go back to your, your, your uh, chronology, it only happens over one or two generations because eventually either they run out of suckers, which is the usual fate of long cons, or the initial predatory scheme is no longer functional without suddenly adding a, a social benefit side that appeals to more people than just rich idiots. Well, I think we've run through a uh, series of don'ts uh, for the next setting that you're all uh, writing out there. So uh, we look forward to uh, your carefully nuanced uh, religions with short histories. And even when they're led by badass characters, those badass characters have a way into them, as do their redoubts. And their um, uh, competent subordinates. Indeed. And it occurs to me that television is a flat circle. We're going to sit here, take these beer cans, rip them up, and discuss True Detective. And we put this segment at the end of the episode so that those who wish to avoid spoilers can do so. Uh, So we'll talk for a while without spoilers for those of you who are driving in your cars. Uh, But I think we can't talk about True Detective without untangling the uh, ending. So, I mean, any more than we could discuss a novel and stop halfway right. through, right? It's it's a whole work of art. So, Ken, I think you came to this, uh, you weren't watching it episode by episode, so you didn't get to have the what the what when they first mentioned the Yellow King, the way that uh, I bolted forward in my... No, uh, s- sadly, everyone on the internet had that for me and then made sure that I knew. Yes, well, I was <laughs> I was in from the beginning and watched it uh, week to week, so I, I got to bolt forward on the couch uh, as, as that happened. So, I uh, really love the show. I have some questions about the ending, which we'll get to when everybody's pulled over uh, who doesn't want to uh, hear them right now. Uh, so what's your overall assessment of the show? I, I, I liked it a great deal. I don't have HBO. I have a buddy who has the HBO Go thingy where you can download their, their streaming version. Um, and he was watching the first episode, and he and I both heard that it was going to go bananas with the king in yellow. And so he stopped until we could watch it together, which meant until we could watch the whole episode, the whole show, you know, on one day. And we did that on a Sunday. Uh, we killed an entire bottle of bullet bourbon and watched the entire uh, season uh, begin to end, which is exactly the way to do it as far as I'm concerned. So you became progressively more like Rust Cole as, uh, as you went along. Uh, exactly. I, I was, I was uh, channeling my Matthew McConaughey 10 years from now already um, when, I, when I started it. And so it was, it was, it was great. Uh, it was it was it was great television on a lot of levels. Obviously, the, the the casting was terrific. I liked the storytelling a great deal. I liked I liked I liked the sort of honoring the format. Right, I, there's so many things are wacky new takes on blah or deconstructions of X that I'm actually more fond of seeing a 
good old take on blah or a reconstruction of X. I'd like to see a, a noir mystery in the in the exact genre that we were told at the beginning of the of the series. I like to see that happen. I, I'm 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 very very uh, d- delighted that I did not have to at some point say, well, okay, I guess this is a good spin on noir. I liked saying. Man, this is actually a good noir. How often does that happen? Never. Yeah, it's a, it's a straight up uh, police procedural serial killer miniseries, mm-hmm. and it is all in the execution. That it's about those two characters and the uh, brilliance of the the writing and the shifts that they undergo over time, and uh, Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey's performances as they. Uh, deliver those characters in two different versions or uh, and i think in rust cases i think there are probably four different rust calls and so uh you know the uh, guy you see in the flashback sequences uh is a demonstrably different person and it's a different uh, performance and uh you can see uh, online mcconaughey discusses the challenge of uh wanting to do the you know he doesn't really get to bust out his tricks until he's playing you know, older Russ Cole, the early Russ Cole is so incredibly buttoned down that he was concerned that there wasn't enough going on in there. But because that initial performance as earlier Cole is so uh, withheld and because of the way that it's structured, right, they shot in chronological sequence, but the series uh, goes back and forth in time uh, and catches up with itself, I think, in a really exciting uh, way partway through that when you're seeing an episode, you're not going, oh, well, that you know, there's not enough going on with earlier Rust Cole. There's a lot actually going on with him. It's just, uh, you know, held bubbling under the surface. So it's difficult to think of another, uh, you know, even with all the great performances by Brian Cranston and James Gandolfini and uh, uh, John Hamm over the years in, in various uh, high-profile miniseries, uh, you know, it's hard to think of another one that uh, that tops what McConaughey is doing there. I, I was actually wondering if they'd shot it in reverse chronological order and had started with him coming right off Dallas Buyers Club, and they're like, you're perfect for the catastrophic condition of your character at the end of this show, and we're just going to shoot it backward, and as you gain your weight back, you can go back into the past and, and no longer look like you're ravaged. I'm not actually sure that's not the case, <laughs> but that but at any rate, they, they shot the one storyline and then the other. Right, yeah. And then so, um, uh, anyway, the but yeah, his performance is great, and I think Woody Harrelson, I think a lot of people, you know, sort of don't give him the credit that they deserve, because he's playing sort of the foil, literally, in the in the formal sense to Rust, but he's also playing a character with his own internality and his own things going on and his own progressions in in a lot of different ways or regressions in a lot of different ways, his own changes. And he also does a really great job. It's it's not like it's just McConaughey and you're tapping your you know your um uh, your your fingers waiting for the for the next McConaughey scene, although McConaughey being McConaughey, sometimes you kind of are. But Woody Harrelson is is in every scene he's in. He's he is bringing it. He is not surrendering screen time to McConaughey. He is working with McConaughey to develop this story in which uh, Rust Cole is more often than not the actor, and uh, his character uh, Hart is more often than not the acted upon. But that's that's still very hard, right? And because they're both they're both highly uh, contradictory figures with a lot of. Uh, different dimensions uh, to them who go through uh, big journeys over time. And although uh, Harrelson's character is the, the less outre of the two, he's, uh, you know, not, not having uh, 
color hallucinations and his uh, monologues are not as extravagant uh, in the interrogation sequences, it's still a, a really real characterization that isn't that sort of simple, you, you know, the, the obvious way to do this would have sane straight-laced cop and crazy rust call. And it's not that at all. And that gives them the ability to p pivot off either, each other and uh, change their attitudes toward one another uh, through scene to scene, which as, you know, drama system uh, readers and players will know is the heart of uh, drama is having dramatic poles that allow the character to uh, shift perspective over time. Um, that raises the interesting question of structurally, uh, what is the show? Is it a, a dramatic show or is it a procedural show? And although it's definitely a mix of the two, ultimately I'd argue that it, it does come out on the procedural end of things because the character has his dramatic epiphany because they resolve the series of external obstacles necessary to finally close the case after uh, having uh, been open uh, for so many years. Yeah, I think that I, I think one of the things about it that makes it so satisfying, though, is that it can be watched really satisfyingly either way. Because you can absolutely, you're right. The dramatic epiphany comes as a result of the procedural epiphany, but because of the nature of the procedure and because of the nature of the uh, thing that they're concerned with. There are so many ways in which the drama is informed and defined, or informs and defines the procedure, right? That the reason that they're seeing the things that they're seeing is because they're the people that they are having those responses to it. And that is, you know, I, and I don't want to say this is unique to True Detective, it is ideally true of all well done writing that has a procedural component, but. It is so very clear in, in True Detective because it goes to the trouble of foregrounding Rust Cole as someone who literally has a inhuman perspective on what's going on, as well as obviously the killers, likewise, having an inhuman perspective into what's going on. And therefore, their, their personalities drive the story. And that's why the, the female characters, people have said the female characters are all two-dimensional and terrible. It's like, yes, this is the perspective of two really broken people who aren't capable of interacting with women. And that's why when we see those female characters in this world, they are revealed as these sort of um, uh, warped uh, creations because they're the creations of these two characters. So I think that you could argue, yes, absolutely, it's procedural. But I think you can also argue, yes, it's absolutely a drama because it's about their personal, you know, internal responses uh, as much as it is to their external activities. And they have to resolve their relationship with one another in order to finally uh, put down the case at the end. So if you were to map mm -hmm. out the story in terms of, you know, when we first see them working together and how far apart they are, and then after the interrogation sequences uh, resolve, that they, uh, you know, the fact that they team up and achieve a rapprochement is the necessary dramatic step for the uh, procedural uh, success at the end. Now, uh, the reason that uh, I don't think our tribe would be as excited uh, by a police procedural serial killer show uh, as much as they are without the references to uh, the Yellow King and Carcosa, and uh, I was never expecting to get more of that than we did. Uh, I think other people kind of uh, thought it was going to go in a more uh, delty, greeny uh, direction. Is it the same show if you just strip out the references to Robert Chambers? Um, no, because it's it's like asking, is Sherlock Holmes the same adventures if they take place in York instead of London? I mean, the setting 
the flavor, the setting details are what are part of what make the story. And this, and I, I think that I, w- I was reading somewhere that uh, Pizzolatto put the chamber stuff in towards the very tail end of, of the creative process that it began as like uh, the Cypress city instead of Carcosa. And I think they were, he was the stone King instead of the yellow King or maybe it was the other way around, but he had things that were not chambersy. And then being a, a nerd as he is, um, he was like, Oh, you know, what would be great here. Chambers. And by putting those in, he is able to do the intelligent thing that you do when you borrow from a pre-existing mythology is you, is you draw some of its numinousness into your setting. And I think that if he'd left it as the Cypress King and the Stone City, we would still be saying this was a really good noir, but we, we would not be talking about it on this podcast, or we might be talking about it in a larger television hut where we're rounding up a bunch of other detective shows. And of course, the important thing to remember is that even in the Chamber's mythos, there aren't a lot of, you know, explicit scenes set on Carcosa. The, the Yellow King never shows up in the Chamber's mythos. The Chamber's mythos in those stories is also about people who are probably crazy having psychotic breakdowns. And we, because of Lovecraft primarily, are attaching a supernatural reality to the occurrences in something like the repair of reputations, which its bizarre uh, future aside is just the story of one guy with a really powerful mania that may or may not be preyed on by another guy who recognized his mania. And if you look at True Detective in that light, that is exactly a Chambers story. And I think that uh, Pizzolatto is good enough at reading Chambers and good enough at putting together a a story that he is able to say, what is the equivalent of a Chambers protagonist going to be doing in this noir? And when he casts Rust's synesthesia and his illusions, when he sees the, the great vortex of the Hyades looming over the actual Carcosa of the show, we are not given to understand that he is having an alien contact moment. We are given to understand that his privileged viewpoint is perceiving Carcosa in this fashion, which is exactly what Chambers does with his protagonists. And I think in terms of uh, describing and a Chambersy or even Lovecrafty world, the really interesting thing the show does is it recasts the whole idea of the uh, cultist as a rank of child abusers. And, you know, that puts this sort of hoary old trope into a more uh, shocking and more contemporary and more real framework. Um, since you were talking about the ending there where he perceives a big uh, swirly something, uh, I guess that takes us to the ending to land the jump at the end for you. I think so, because I think that we've been we've been seeing Rust try desperately to, 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 to change and, and connect with anything larger than himself throughout the whole show. He's either been protesting too much or he's been literally, you know, taking refuge in Schopenhauer and in Nietzsche in anything that will allow him to continue to be an atomized uh, individual and having that connection restored to him of his daughter at the end. That's, that's what he's been working for the whole time. That's a completely, and you can't say it doesn't happen because obviously it historically happens a lot of times and a character that doesn't change over the course of the, of the, of the events he's gone through would be a less satisfying character than one who does. Now, as an unbeliever, I always cool down my ardor a bit when an ending is uh, goes to, oh, you've got to have faith, and good and evil are real, and uh, that the uh, faithless character reacquiring faith seems to me uh, a little less interesting and, and uh, something of a cop-out, especially when they uh, do it in response to having something uh, supernatural occur. And I was a little um, 
I, I would also, you know, there's another nagging thing for me in that it, uh, show goes a long way to set up this whole hierarchy of bad guys, but really they, they get the, you know, the low guy on the totem pole and the other guys are still out there and they've been concerned about the broader hierarchy throughout the show, but then there's kind of a, oh, well, we got the main guy. Never mind. So the question in my mind is, uh, the show is going to continue with different characters and I'm not, it's not clear to me whether it's going to be an American horror story thing where it's just, a, they're all completely, uh, self-contained or whether we will see bits of the mythology start to uh, connect and see a broader story told if this series continues over multiple seasons. So maybe that's something that will be resolved later, but I, I was surprised uh, to the extent at which that particular thread was uh, allowed to sort of hang there. I, I think that, again, knowing that it's noir and knowing the ending of, of, of virtually all noirs, certainly post-Chinatown, I was less surprised that the uh, that the bad guys, in some sense, still got away with it, but that they 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 moved forward and they did at least uncover the truth. And one presumes that in the world of the show, that that videotape is out there. Everyone knows now that there is this ring. It's not a theory. It is now a who is in the ring question, and that's a much different question than you know is there a ring? Um, and and so I, I think that they've done something to expose it. I believe that from what I've read, and again I could be wrong. The next adventure is going to be totally self-contained. Uh, that uh, I think he was talking about it being the occult secret history of America's transportation system, which means he's he's got me back in <laughs> back, in the, back in the seat again. <laughs> he got me at hello. He got me at at um, uh, occult secret history. But uh, I don't think that they're going to be exploring this particular uh, ring of pedophiles in Louisiana. But I think that within the world of the show a glorious victory in which they, you know, marched the governor out of his office in handcuffs or whatever would, would also have been unrealistic. That this right. I think it's straight up legit to do that, but I, I wanted a more, uh, just a little harder, forget it, Jake, it's Carcosa Town moment than just sort mm -hmm. of offhandedly dismissing the thing that they've been concerned with all along. Yeah, I, I, I guess, you know, how hard that fell, I guess, depended on how much you were empathizing with uh, Woody Harrelson at that time, you know, asking the question again, what's more important? another human being or society and answering it kind of in the opposite direction than Rust Cole is answering, that they sort of cross paths a little bit. And, and so he's like, the important thing is that Rust not die and that we tell him that, you know, we did something that, um, uh, that, that moved the ball forward and, and got, you know, and, and justified the, the, the literal hell you went through. I, and I think that the way that Woody played that was, was so uh, powerful and important that uh, it justifies what you, what you might see legitimately as sort of a diminuendo of, and also there's a conspiracy of, of pagan pedophiles out there in Louisiana power structure. Right, and I, I don't want to make it seem like uh, I felt the ending was a big disappointment or uh, whatever. I just felt that there were th those couple of notes that didn't hit me quite the way I uh, had hoped they would. Uh, well, I think we've uh, said what we needed to say about uh, True Detective, uh, which means uh, we're off into a loop of infinite recurrence, uh, i.e. Uh, the end of the show. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Phoenix. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Buy us some beers so we can methodically tear up the cans by hitting the donate button at KenRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, podcast, or treasure map by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.